Hello and welcome to a new episode of eWorklife, a podcast where we talk about productivity, well-being and work-life balance. We talk to scientists and others who can help us make the most of our technology to get our work done, to keep connected to others and to support our health and well-being. I'm Anna Cox, Professor of Human-Computer Interaction at UCL in London and your host for this episode. In today's episode, I'll be talking to Dr. Connor Linehan, an expert in the design and evaluation of technology to support education and health behaviours. We cover his journey from being a psychologist to a leading HCI specialist working on the application of behavioural psychology principles to technology design with the aim of creating groundbreaking health behaviour interventions. We also cover how we already know which games are best at encouraging exercise over the longer term and how physical activity researchers might be on a bit of a wild goose chase if they focus on trying to improve on those. And we talk about how his desire to not get hurt when playing American football is a powerful personal motivator for keeping fit and strong. But before that, let's listen to some top tips from other guests about how we can use technology to survive the digital age. I'm Paulina Bondaronek and my top tip for using technology to survive life in the digital age is combining pleasure to distract you from the pain. For example, listening to your favourite podcast whilst you're running. I'm Marta Cecchinato, a senior lecturer in HCI at Northumbria University. My top tip for using technology to support your well-being is to make sure technology is serving you in that specific moment of your life. Maybe you liked having work email on your phone during your commute to triage messages. If you suddenly start working from home, having email on your phone can be an unwelcome distraction. Now to today's guest. Dr. Connor Linehan is a senior lecturer in applied psychology at University College Cork, Ireland and an expert in the design and evaluation of technology to support education and health behaviours. He has a strong interest in how games and gamification can be useful in these contexts. He's worked on a wide range of research projects investigating the design of educational games, vision therapy interventions, dietary interventions, wearable sleep monitors and online mental health interventions. So let's get straight into it. Here's my conversation with Connor. Welcome, Connor. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks for the invitation, Anna. Cool. So I know you started your university education by studying psychology at Maynooth University in Ireland. So can you tell me first how you like got interested in psychology and why you decided to do that at university rather than anything else? I didn't realise we were going all the way back to there. <laughs> going all the way back. <laughs> uh, that's a really good question. Um, I I got into like I to study arts in university, and I picked psychology as a subject to study, and I just found it really fascinating. You know, um, I suppose it's it's the kind of subject because it's in some ways aimed towards a profession. You know, there are professional psychologists that it can be a very exciting thing to study because you know you're you're kind of carried along not just at learning something academically, but learning a lot of professional skills as well. And I think that really um, appealed to me at the time. But just, I, th- I think um, from a very, I was very interested in video games. I was interested in sports and you could see how 
psychology was kind of, I think, the science that seemed most useful in understanding those things. And, you know, yeah. Okay. And so at what point did you think, oh, when I finish this, I'm going to do a PhD? After I finished uh, my university degree, I spent a year working, just like not in an interesting job in customer service. And I decided I wanted to come back to university. I wanted to do a master's. And I was literally about to go in uh, to do the registration for a master's course in sociology. And uh, my supervisor from my final year project in psychology rang me up and said, here, I've got this funded project. Do you want to come back and do uh, a research degree with me? And yeah, it was just incredibly good luck that it happened that day and not the following day. And um, I was delighted, you know, because I, I would have funding to study instead of having to pay to study. And I would get, you know, two year, it was originally a two year research master's rather than a, a one year taught master's. Uh, and then I just did an extra year, basically turned it into a PhD kind of thing. Okay. And so was the topic for that already set out by the supervisor or was that something that you chose? Yeah, it was. So it was part of a funded project about video games. It was uh, It was about, actually, now this is going back. This, this is kind of thing that, you know, we wouldn't really study now. It was about network latency and how it affects video game playing. And... So the project was funded in 2004 when that was a big issue and, you know, before we had broadband and all of that. And um, so it was a bigger project. There was a a bunch of PhD students in engineering and computer science who were working on network communication protocols and, you know, ways to minimize um, harms to the experience in that way. But we were really interested in how psychology could be part of the problem. Like, is it possible to think about how, I suppose the complexity of a game might make you less aware that fast kind of uh, problems are actually happening in, in the game because you're concentrating on solving problems. So we were lots of exper- we did lots of experiments around problem solving and puzzles in game playing uh, and looking at you know the distracting but also the distracting potential of that, but also you know basic research on how people solve those kinds of puzzles. So we've just sort of talked about the work you did for your PhD. A lot of your research since your PhD has been looking at computer games, but in a kind of health and well-being context. Um, so how did you sort of make that link, like to kind of looking at games in this other context, rather than just looking at games for the sake of playing games or just like the general player experience? It's interesting, isn't it? Because I've actually been... You know, when you do these kinds of things, I suppose you take a moment to reflect on your career and why you've done things. And I think there's there's always a, a temptation to kind of put like a, you know, a narrative on it that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and in some ways I was kind of thinking that maybe that that in some ways does a disservice to people doing their PhDs currently or early career researchers who might think that people like us who were further on in our career had a really clear direction of how this was all going where I don't, I don't think I did. I mean, so my, so like I was very, in my PhD, it was very much a behavioral psychology approach that we were taking. So my PhD is about video games, but it was also about behavioral psychology. So I always had that kind of interest in um, like how we can measure behavior really well and how we can kind of get some control and prediction and using all the kind of basic principles from behavioral psychology 
in technology design. Uh, and I think when you have that interest, it's kind of natural to think about the other things that those kind of behavioral principles are useful for. So you, you often see kind of behavior change interventions built on behavioral principles, or you see, you know, you see psychotherapy built on behavioral principles, or you see, um, yeah, health interventions and education as well is another place where, you know, principles of like reinforcement, tracking behavior, uh, measurement, analysis, and, and all of this, and, and, you know, really controlled defining of target behaviors that you're trying to change um, and measurement uh, and using those principles to kind of get you to that direction. So I think it's, it's kind of a natural thing if you've got that background to see, well, we could use games, which seem to be based on those kind of principles to use thing, you know, to help in areas like education or health, which also have interventions built on those principles. So ho- hopefully that kind of makes sense, but, but I, I suppose it kind of made a lot of sense to me. Um, like I suppose the first thing that I went to do after I finished my PhD, I went over to the University of Lincoln um, to work with Sean Lawson. And we were, for the first few years, working on educational games um, before I kind of got into, into looking at health applications of it. And I suppose that really, that experience of having to design the games, because before that I was just studying games, but the experience of having to design them really made it, obvious to me how useful uh, the behavioral psychology stuff that I'd learned in my PhD was actually for game design and for, I suppose, thinking through the process of, well, if we're going to build a game that is going to encourage some behavior change, whether it's education or whether it's health, then it needs to do these kinds of things, you know, X, Y, and Z. So that your sort of like an initial training in psychology has had quite a profound effect I guess on on all the research you've gone on to do since, in that in the kind of bringing those principles through. Absolutely, and and the interesting thing is that I you know I went from being in a psychology department where I did my undergrad and my degree, uh, sorry my undergrad and my PhD, to a computer science department where I worked for seven years, and like the longer I stayed there, I didn't really see myself as a psychologist anymore. Um, I was very much a HCI researcher, you know, doing HCI research. I was going to Kai, I was going to mobile HCI, Kai Play and all of these places. And I wasn't going to any psychology conferences. And yet, like it was everything I was doing was psychology at, at its heart. It was taking, you know, some principles and applying them in that technology context. You know, I was kind of involved in a lot of projects at Lincoln that even weren't mine. So like uh, Derek Foster, who's, who's at Lincoln now, he... He, uh, he was build, doing really cool research, looking at um, encouraging changes in energy consumption. And we did a lot of kind of fiddling with how the interventions would work to try and encourage people to, um, to lower their energy consumption or how to present those messages in, in ways that were, you know, fun or nice rather than being really aversive. And it was, you know, all of those things, there was just the psychology was in them all. It was just wasn't obvious maybe on the first look. So... Uh... I want to kind of get on to talking about um, some of the particular papers that you've written about the research that you've done. And one thing that I guess you perhaps won't be surprised that I'm asking you about is um, the paper that you've written about using video games to encourage exercise. Um, so so I guess that yeah, in that paper, you asked whether exer games are exercise. So what's the answer? Are they? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's 
I suppose when we were doing that project, we found that, like, like, as what normally happens very annoyingly, is that that's a very complicated question and there's lots of different ways you could ask it and various different ways you could answer it. Um, like, in order to answer that question, so my, it was a project that myself and Joe Marshall at Nottingham did together, and um, Joe did most of it, I'm going to be very honest, you know. Uh, you know, I was kind of um, someone who talked with Joe and helped him do the reviews and stuff, but but it was it was kind of largely his his work guiding it, um, but I suppose we we kind of we kind of saw in order to answer that question there was actually four studies necessary. Now we actually only published the first one, <laughs> so because because like in order to answer it, like the, the first paper, the one that we've actually published, uh, is a systematic review that looks at in the moment when people are playing exercise, are they demonstrating the kind of cardiovascular activity that we would have expected with comparable forms of exercise. So, um, you know, comparing it to jogging or dancing or, you know, not necessarily really hardcore exercises, but exercises that very much raise your cardiovascular uh, kind of exertion levels. There are some examples in the literature where games do bring players consistently to that level that's con- that is similar to jogging or dancing uh, but it's really rare so it's only under very specific circumstances um, the the best kind of examples are generally with dance dance revolution um, which really does seem to encourage people to exercise in a way that's very similar to if you set out to do a sport or a dancing something like that a lot of the times uh, the research finds that um that that the extra games just aren't they're not consistently bringing people to that level of exertion it's not that far above sitting around or standing um but but also like there we found big problems with the research designs as well where a, a lot of the studies that were claiming that extra games um were better than something else they were comparing it to something really boring so like, <laughs> so and it, this is something that really annoyed us when we were doing the review is that um, a lot of the times, say like they would compare a game, which would seem like a really fun task with like walking on a treadmill. So so what would you have preferred them to be comparing it to? Um, well, I suppose if you're, if you're interested in the question of, is there something about a game that makes you want to exercise more? So if, you're, if your game involves, um, say it's Dance Dance Revolution, then maybe what you should be comparing it with is dancing without the game rather than comparing it to walking on a treadmill. Okay, yeah. So so I guess like you said that you were really looking at does it make you um, be as energetic or more energetic than these other activities? But then you also kind of touched then on does it encourage you to do this more? And that's like a different question, isn't it? So... Um, so if they're in general not so great at getting us to raise our heart rate the way that we might need to, are they effective at making us want to do exercise more or engage in these kinds of activities more? Yeah, and that, and that's another good question, and it's 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 a difficult one to answer. It. And it's actually probably require it's probably two questions as well because you could answer it like does it encourage me right now to play tennis more than playing tennis does? Or you could look at it as a longer term thing. You know, am I playing more regularly? 
which is kind of more more of a behavioral way of looking at it, which I, I kind of like. But we don't really have those long term studies. The systematic review that myself and Joe did, um, we we didn't study systematically those longer term questions of motivation, like does do games over the longer term encourage more exercise than than an alternative which isn't game-based um, because we just didn't get that study done. The first one had 120 papers in it and it took us years to do. <laughs> um, so, uh, I mean, I think that's a question that's yet to be answered. There just aren't a lot of long-term studies really, or at least there wasn't when we were looking. What we found was that generally the studies of games as exercise were very short-term. They were, you know, over a session or over a few days or the best ones were over a number of weeks. But it was very little that kind of looked at over months or over six months. Um, I think there was one study in, in our that we came across that looked at Dance Dance Revolution over six months. And that was kind of the best one that we found in that respect. So, I mean, anything that, that can improve that kind of long term look at games as, as exercise interventions would be um, really valued, I think. Yeah, yeah. I guess when we're thinking about um, games in health or for health a lot of the time we tend to be thinking about um gamification don't we so like you rather than real games like just taking elements of games and putting them into some intervention um and i know you've been thinking about this quite a lot in your research so do you think that this is effective or are there really good examples of where gamification has been used to motivate people to kind of live healthy lives or engage in some kind of health behavior such a such a hard question to answer <laughs> i have it's not because there's no answer because i have like 20 answers that are, you know i've all got bubbling in my head at the moment i mean there's one of them i mean so like actually going back to your last question about games encouraging exercise over the longer term like we have those things already i think this is this one that, that myself and joe kind of got across in some of our papers as well it's like we have we have this technology already. They're called sports. So these are games that encourage exercise, right? And they are they really encourage it over a long period of time. So people will play soccer from the age of you know three till they're sixty five or beyond even. Um, so we ha- so we have games technology that encourages exercise sports. We should be comparing exercise games with sports because that's really the alternative. You know, myself and myself and Joe did some really cool research where we tried to make games that were, you know, it was all it's all part of the same project that we've been describing, where we're kind of a bit critical of the extra games being a bit boring and not, you know, they're a bit safe. So we kind of designed a lot of games that are a bit more dangerous <laughs> and therefore create a lot more, um, I suppose, engagement and a lot more they really raise your heart rate a lot. So, for example, one of the games that we designed, um, it was called The Balance of Power. So it was played in a squash court, um, which, first of all, like in itself, was a fantastic thing to be involved in. So we we realized, well, we, Joe, realized that the, um, the Microsoft Connect, if you put it in the middle of a squash court, kind of a quarter of the way in, it the zone that it picks up was exactly the same size as the half of the squash court by look so uh so we put that in there and we we designed games that people could play in the squash court uh, and the microsoft connect would actually pick up where in the courts that they were 
Um, and we made some really simple games. So like the one balance of power, basically we had four players. So two, two teams of two. You had half of the court that you had to stay in. Uh, and on a, a random schedule, so randomly, you know, once every 30 seconds, it would say five, four, three, two, one. If there was more people on your side of the court than the other side of the court, you'd win a point. And that's the only rule. <laughs> Everything else is fair game. Uh, so we had we had the lights turned off. We had a really nice soundtrack. So Adrian Hazard um, from Nottingham designed the sound. It was incredible. It was like being in a, an arcade in the 1980s. And uh, we had some projections up on the back wall, which were kind of stylized versions of what was happening on the court. And what happened was you got this five, four, three, two, one. As that was happening, well, well, before it kind of counted down, you found the two teams kind of stalking each other, you know, feeling each other out. And when it goes five, four, three, you got this incredible rush of aggression. Well, aggression isn't the right word, but kind of just wrestling each other, trying to pull each other to their side of the court. And, you know, what we found was that people were playing it for two minutes, three minutes, and they couldn't stand up anymore. They were so out of breath. They were so, they were using all of their energy, absolutely 100% of it to, you know, wrestle their friends, try to get them on the ground, bring them out of their side, get up and they, you know, get a break for 20 seconds, do it again. And, and it just seemed like a much different thing than, you know, we sports, which is kind of, you know, I suppose where me and Joe were, were both coming from, it's like, you know, that's those we sports isn't the kind of extra games that we'd like to see. We'd like to see people fighting in a squash court. Uh, doesn't it? Not everyone is obviously going to be into um, that, that kind of level of physical kind of interaction. I, I realise that. But, but I think we can be a bit more ambitious, I suppose, is the point. The points badges and leaderboards only work to an extent. You know, they, they have, tend to have a, a short-term impact. So self-determination theory is something that has really been, you know, latched onto in, uh, in, in human-computer interaction and in, in games research. Um, and it, it kind of like, it, it's just, it's a, it's a nice theory that, that in some ways identifies different, um, types of motivation or different sources of motivation for why people might choose to do things. Right. So one of the nice things that self-determination theory does is it, it identifies the difference between, um, how do they put it? Extrinsic motivation and intrinsic motivation. So, I think the kind of critique that you get from a lot of games researchers is that kind of adding points and badges to things, it encourages this this kind of extrinsic motivation. So people engage with that activity because they're going to get some points and badges, but that actually has limited value in the longer term. You kind of get very sick of that. Uh, it, it kind of loses its motivation uh, ability. The other thing it does is if you are already intrinsically motivated to do something, that adding those things to it can actually be quite patronizing. So, so like if you're, you know, playing soccer uh, and uh, you're really good at it and then you get like badges for like keeping, you know, for every good tackle that you make, you kind of like, well, no, that, that doesn't uh, satisfy me. Like I wanted to win the game. I wanted to be good at it. You know, you, so I suppose the, the thinking has turned towards uh, more, thinking about how you can uh, use more intrinsic motivation. So um, how we can think more about people's values and use, use that in, in how we kind of motivate people. So and trying to find kind of nice matches between what people's values are and the kind of activities 
that you're, you're that they're they're trying to engage in. So instead of just saying, "Well done, you did a thing, you got a badge," using kind of more sophisticated uh, motivational techniques that are more to do it. Here, here, what are the kinds of things you wanted to do, and how do the behaviors that you're doing actually match up with that? And you know, yeah, you can monitor the the link between those two things. Um, and maybe that's a better way of, of motivating because what you're really trying to do is, is kind of teach a longer term um, behavior. So like with, with the extra games, ideally what you would like to do is not get someone to play a game for a short amount of time, but teach people to love exercising, which should generalize then depending on, you know, you could pick up any game and enjoy it or actually enjoy running, which uh, <laughs> I know you do. Um but not everyone does. So in terms of like thinking, like trying to think about what motivates someone intrinsically to do these sorts of things, it strikes me that what you're saying is like, we need a deeper understanding of what drives people. You know, like stickers and badges work for young children. Like they're really good for young children. But beyond that... um they're not they're not generally so effective are they but and there are other things that are better and I guess that kind of I can see how that draws on your interest in psychology again like getting to the understanding of what's driving people what what are their values what do they want to do what are their needs and so on absolutely and the the annoying thing though for the app developers is that those things are very individual so it's hard to kind of give everyone the same, you know, what's the easy thing? You can give everyone a badge, you know, but it's very difficult to um, give everyone the, the type of, you know, meaning in their life that they need. For, from, I suppose, from a behavioral perspective, like these are things that we learn over our entire lives. The, our values are things that, you know, you don't learn in a day, that you don't learn in a, a weekend or by playing a game. They're, they're things that are ingrained in how you're raised and the kind of environment you grew up in and, uh, all the kind of experiences that you've had. Um, you don't decide what your values are really there. You know, they're things that you learn and are really well ingrained and they really guide how you behave in that way. So, you know, we can fight against those things or we can try and understand them and work with them, I suppose, is, is kind of where we've got to with with um, some of, actually some of the projects that I'm doing at the moment where we t- actually taking more of that kind of approach um, not not around games, around health interventions, but um, yeah. Can you tell me about one of those then? Um, yeah, I could tell you about one that's actually ongoing at the moment, and we've 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 been doing it for years and years now because it turns out if you if you want to design a behavioural intervention following like the behaviour change wheel and you know that whole process that takes years and years to do properly. So this is a project. Uh, in UCC, in, so where I work, University College Cork, and it was kind of done in collaboration with the Students' Union there and the Student Health Services. And there's a, a bunch of people from Business Information Systems, uh, a few of us in Applied Psychology, uh, the, the, the Health Service and, and Public Health. So a whole load of people involved in it. But it's a project for uh, about drug taking among students. So we're, what we're trying to do is we're build, trying to build an intervention around that would in, encourage harm reduction around drug taking. So um, harm reduction is, uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's an approach which involves a whole load of things. But the idea is that the outcome would be people would, would be suffering less harms from taking drugs, which obviously a part of that is 
you know, trying to encourage people to not take drugs maybe at all. Yeah. Um, but if you if you are going to do it, then to do it in ways that are, you know, I suppose, mindful and safe. And that. so but the, the interesting thing about that project is that um, often the prevalence of drug taking among students at the moment is really high, actually. Also, at the same time, most of those people don't really see it as a problem. So like to do an intervention in that kind of context is quite challenging because if people don't immediately see that they need to or want to change their behavior, then what can you do? You know, what kind of leverage do you have? It's different for somebody who wants to quit smoking and you're trying to help them to do that. When they're kind of very motivated and they see the damage that smoking is doing, it's different for something where you don't really see the harms in it. And that's why we've kind of taken this approach that's less about, you know, I want to take less drugs. Here's my goal. And I'll just, you know, because imagine getting badges. Oh, you didn't take drugs this weekend. You know, that it's not really something. I don't think anyone would appreciate that. A streak of three clean days or whatever. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> it would be so patronizing. Like, you know, um, so so what we've done in that project is kind of go more to like drawing on actually psychological therapy, some techniques that were de- developed in a, a, a form of therapy called acceptance and commitment therapy. Which is behavior therapy. It's it's like cognitive behavior therapy or um, uh, mindfulness based stress reduction or any of those kind of behavior therapies, which involves. Um, so what we're doing involves asking people about their own values and then like asking them to reflect on how their behavior aligns with those, and then giving them skills to apply that kind of reflective decision making in moments when they are actually making decisions. So it's kind of like an educational thing. I suppose it's kind of skill building. And then now that you have the skill, look at how you can apply it in your own life. But you could see how a similar approach could be effective regardless of what the behavior is, you know? I mean, it was great that we got years and years and years to think this through, and it was a very difficult problem. The The intervention exists now, and we're, we're about to do a trial, um, which is great because it's taken a long time to get there. But I, I suppose, you know, you can see how that's a very different approach um you know it's it's not always probably going to be necessary like there will still be situations where just logging a behavior uh, you know and keeping an eye on it will be really useful but i suppose in situations where maybe it's kind of people are finding it more difficult or don't see the need to change then that kind of more values-based approach i think it probably is necessary so can you tell us a bit more about the intervention itself so is it something where you sort of sit down and you work through this online program and you learn something. Yeah, so it's 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 kind of, a, I hadn't really imagined uh, speaking about this at this length in, in, in this talk, but actually it's great. I'm sure, you know, the, everyone is going to be delighted that I'm promoing it. Um, so it's called, the project is called My Use, by the way, M-Y-U-S-E, if you want to uh, look it up. Um, yeah, so it involves um, a website. So it's, it's it's a website, but it's also an app, depending on whether you're, on a laptop or on a phone at the start it kind of screens you basically how or how often or if it frequently or and um, that you take drugs and it and it gives you a different experience based on whether you're like not taking them at all occasionally or quite a lot it completely changes what what the intervention is depending on uh, on your kind of scores on that that screening questionnaire so that in itself i think is quite nice because of often Programs don't do that. You know, they, they assume that the same kind of thing will work for everyone. Um, and then at the start, there's a, a chunk where it kind of aims, it kind of takes information from you and then gives you feedback about it. So a, a kind of like a social norm where it's like, 
uh, asks you for information about your own drug taking and your thoughts about it. And it compares that with other people who've completed the survey, but also, you know, published the information. And so the idea is that it gives you some context for your own behavior. uh, And then it goes on and does these skill building um, activities that are based on behavior therapy so that they involve videos and um, exercises where it asks you to kind of fill in information and it uses that information later on. So, so you might like declare a goal. You're one of, you know, one of my goals is this, or, you know, or I want to, you know, do really well in college. I want to do, I want to, you know, make the first team for the sports team. And it uses them then to ask you later on, you know, how are your behaviors kind of matching up with that? And what, what can you do if, if a situation arises where you think that the the behaviors that you're engaging in maybe don't match with your values. It doesn't involve the kind of daily tracking of behavior, I suppose, is the interesting thing. Because we we thought about that and we realized it, it didn't really make sense to do that. It's not the kind of thing you would track every day. The vast majority of people do it the odd time, you know, at a weekend. I'm not trying to suggest the vast majority of people <laughs> take drugs. The vast majority of people who take drugs do it at the odd time. So it sounds like... Um this intervention that you've created could be adapted or maybe it can be used just the way it is for supporting people in adopting other health behaviors whether that is increasing their amount of physical activity or eating more healthily like this whole idea of thinking about what are your goals and values and how does your how does your lifestyle and your behavior really support you achieving those so so is it something that that someone could just use for something else or would that require a bit of adaptation i mean i mean technologically you could adapt it quite easily because the the way it's been built yeah absolutely but the problem is the content is very specialized and this is this is to do with um you know the behavior change wheel process that we've gone through it's really about identifying what's likely to work as an intervention with this behavior with this type of behavior given what we know about this behavior so it would it would require a little bit so if you were going to change to healthier eating I think there would be you know there's different environmental or contextual cues that are going to cue you sticking to or not sticking to your goals in that kind of context so a little bit of work I think probably might need to be done to um, find what what the most appropriate what's it called, behavior change techniques um, would be for that particular behavior. And I, that's, I mean, that's the thing, that's one of the things I really value about the, the whole process really is is genuinely the amount of time it, it, it forces you to think about the behavior. So not try to just use the same process on every single behavior because there will be different, um, I suppose, different stresses on people in relation to different behaviors. So so the general principle could be used or the kind of approach could be used to develop other interventions but but it's a very it's kind of specific for the problem that you've been addressing. Yeah, I mean I think I think the general idea of having it based on values and looking at, you know, and that whole process of considering your values in relation to your your behavior and then also like having that as a skill that you apply in the rest of your life so that you can draw on that whenever you think you're making a bad decision I think all of that stuff is totally generalizable and and it does it does feel like something more worthwhile than putting badges and points on things and like like I think people could go away with that from that intervention having learned something not just about drugs but actually would be useful in a lot of different ways 
if you give people skills to, I suppose, make decisions in a more considered way, then that could have lots of rippling impacts on, on people's lives. And I think, I think those are the kind of goals that it's, it's like with when we were talking about exercise earlier, trying to encourage like a love for exercise, you know, and, and, you know, really kind of attending to what you like about the experience of exercising. And, Cause that's the kind of thing that's going to generalize and actually encourage um, a change in behavior in the longer term. So it sounds like you, you know, in your work, this engagement with really understanding people and and using psychological theory to help you design interventions is like working really well for you. Like it, it's like it seems to have ticked lots of boxes of pulling your interests together. And um, what are the things that make it really difficult to do that kind of research? Um, yeah. So well. Yeah. <laughs> lots of things it takes a lot of time to do that stuff well and it genuinely so that my youth project has been going on for four years now and we've had basically um three full-time researchers working on it the whole time so you can imagine it's taken a lot of funding you know to be crass about it but a lot of time a lot of money a lot of work there's no kind of quick fix solution i suppose if if you're interested but i suppose the the, the benefit then is that you know, we're quite confident that it's going to actually be useful. So it's not a gamble in the same way that maybe other things would be. Like any sort of learning, it's going to cause discomfort. And so you need to kind of be set up in a way that you can deal with that in the research process. We have a clinical psychologist on our team, which is fantastic. One of the postdocs is a clinical psychologist. It's amazing. He does everything. <laughs> Facilis, uh, he's uh, fantastic. I think it'd be very difficult to, to to do that kind of work if you weren't if you didn't have people from that background because you're putting participants in situations where you know maybe uncomfortable stuff is coming up and you, so you need to have processes in place to deal with that so that you're not putting the researcher in a really awkward situation or you're not kind of causing harm for the participant and they go away kind of thinking oh you've just you've just you know you've just raised things. That, that I feel about myself that I'm not happy about and then you just left me. An element of that is always going to be necessary if you're actually trying to encourage uh, that kind of long, like actual change in, in behaviours. So, yeah, I think I think that's a big challenge as well, is that actually this idea that we can change behaviour just with some funny badges and, and some points and that it's not having really big psychological impacts on people, you know, it's probably overly optimistic, you know. We, we probably are putting people in weird situations anyway. In the work that you've done along the way to kind of creating this thing, um, you've obviously had to engage with prospective users of this kind of technology. And um, so I expect at some point you've asked them sort of how they feel about having a piece of technology facilitate this well where is it like perhaps it's the sort of situation that many people would expect that they might engage with a therapist about so do people tend to be open to this idea of technology taking this role they they do and it's because now like things are probably a bit better in the uk than they are in ireland but like our services are atrocious so like if you've been really frustrated by the lack of services then so the idea that something would be available to you tomorrow that you could actually access and might be helpful i think yeah people see the benefit in that now they would prefer therapist maybe but 
um it's it's just not going to be um it's not it's not feasible I, I suppose people are very open to the idea that at least they get a service if we do it digitally and we do it well i mean i think with, with some of these issues people maybe they might avoid going to real world services as well and and but i guess the the flip side of it is that um someone might be concerned that you know this computer system is gathering data about them and knowing stuff not uh, both about their behavior and about their innermost thoughts and values and so on like do you think there are things we need to worry about there see i i think we should be worried but the participants don't seem to be worried they 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 don't seem to be as worried i mean okay. they probably don't understand enough about it like and that's why um the way I mean, like the way we've built our system, it, there's nothing to worry about. It doesn't log anything. It doesn't log things in a way that's in any way identifiable. But I, I think that's a really good um, question in terms of like us as a university research group. You can probably trust that we're not doing something nefarious with the data. But if this was, if the same approach was then taken by a commercial company, um, yeah, I, I would imagine that we should have concerns about, especially the more personal this the data becomes, the more maybe worried we should be about it. So, okay, so we're getting towards the end of our time and uh, I'm kind of curious as to how your research has impacted your own life. Are there ways in which you make use of technology to keep yourself healthy or are there um, perhaps skills or knowledge that you've come across um, perhaps on this project you've been talking about, about how to change your own behaviour and that's something that um that you've adopted <laughs> <laughs> or you just could say no <laughs> it's funny i don't like i don't use any apps <laughs> maybe maybe this is a natural consequence of really digging into into like how they work and what the value is and stuff like that and maybe i've just internalized all this stuff in, in a way that like i mean i've during the lockdown i i've i just got into this really weird habit where i just work out in my sitting room every day um without I don't record anything. I've never, I've never tracked my runs. I, I'm not going to say that. I don't think it's valuable. I don't think a lot, a lot of people get paid for it. But I, in my my own life, even though I am a researcher on this topic, I, I, I don't use them. Is it just like you've you're um, naturally quite motivated to uh, to engage in physical activity? As an example, because you know how much you enjoy it. Yeah, I think I think that's that's. That's it. And I'm probably kind of doing the thing of like attending to the exercise as an enjoyable thing in itself rather than trying to have some sort of externalized motivation for it. So I don't see the need for that externalized motivation. On a longer time scale, the, the reason why I exercise so much is because I play American football and I love it so much that I'm like, that's how much I love that game that I'm willing to do all of this work, you know? So like that is a game encouraging me to exercise. It's just, you know, not as highly technologically oriented like that game you just have to be in great shape or you get hurt so that's a really good motivation in itself (laughs) indeed (laughs) okay so um i think we'll wrap it up there so thanks very much for a really interesting discussion i've really enjoyed talking to you Thanks, Anna. Yeah, that was a very different discussion than I was expecting, to be honest. But it was uh, it was really interesting as well. And I, I thought, um, you know, we've kind of you made you made me think quite a lot there. Yeah, thanks for that. Thanks so much to Connor Linehan. You can find him at Connor Linehan on Twitter, 
and you can find a link to his website and access to the show notes for this episode on our website eworklife.co.uk and on there you'll also find more evidence-based tips on using technology to support work and well-being and also an opportunity to try out our new eWorklife radio app. I'd love to hear your feedback on this episode. You can find me on Twitter at AnnaCox underscore. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell your friends and you can also leave us a star rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks as always to our producer, Claire Casson. This episode was sponsored by the EPSRC Get A Move On Network Plus. Music by scotthomesmusic.com. E-Work Life, powered by UCL Minds. <laughs>